Let's ask God to help us now with his word. Uh, our gracious Father, uh, we pray now that in your mercy we would get a glimpse of your greatness and understanding your almighty power we would learn to trust you as you deserve. Help me to speak your word truthfully and clearly and help us all to understand what you say in your word, uh, to believe it and to honour you by conforming our thinking to your truth. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. He, Jesus, went a little further, fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane contemplating his coming death. The crucifixion he knows awaits him. He feels the horror of what is to come intensely and seeks his father, committing himself into the father's hands. And what is the conviction that is at the forefront of Jesus' mind in this hour? It's that the father is God Almighty, for whom all things are possible. It's the presupposition of Jesus' prayer just as it underlies his trust. Jesus gives himself to the Father's will, praying, not my will but yours be done, not only because the Father is good and loves him, but because the Father is almighty and will achieve his good purpose for him. And the Lord Jesus didn't only trust God's almighty power for his own life. He trusted it for the success of his mission. Uh, When the rich young ruler, the kind of person any leader of a popular movement would want as a follower turned away from Jesus because the cost of following Jesus seemed too great. And when the disciples wondered in response whether anyone could be saved, Jesus said, with man it is impossible but not with God because all things are possible with God. Jesus knew his mission would succeed, that he would have followers on the terms he declared leaving all to follow him. That people ensnared in their love of money of their idols would be saved because God is almighty, all things are possible for him. And this wasn't an abstract conviction about some distant impersonal force. It was a core conviction at the heart of his relationship with his father, a conviction on which our Lord staked everything, a conviction shared by Jesus' followers, by those who believe in him. This is what we believe, that God is almighty. And God has taught this about himself from the beginning and throughout his dealings with his people. Genesis 1, where all is brought into being by God's word exactly as he willed it, without opposition or frustration, is the declaration that the Lord is the only God, the almighty sovereign over all that is. When, for example, 90-year-old Sarah laughed at the promise that she would have a son, the Lord says, is anything 
impossible for the Lord. At the appointed time, I'll come back to you and in about a year, she will have a son. And Isaac was born a year later. Uh, when the prophet Jeremiah stunned by God telling him to buy land in the nation under judgment from which the people are going to be deported to buy that land because God has promised that the people would return, God says, is anything too difficult for me? When Mary asks of the promise of a son, how can this be since I have not had sexual relations with a man? The angel replies, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you for nothing will be impossible with God. And she gives birth, a virgin birth, to Jesus, the Son of God, whose trust in the garden in God's almighty power to fulfil his good purposes for his Son through the death that is the Father's will is vindicated in his resurrection and exaltation, whose trust in God's power to save has been vindicated over and over again through the centuries as the gospel word has been seen in life after life to be the power of God to save. All things are possible for our God. He is almighty. This is what we believe. In fact, drawing on Abraham's experience, Paul characterises Christian faith in Romans 4 as faith in the almighty God for whom nothing is impossible, who gives life to the dead and calls things into existence that do not exist. We believe in one God almighty. So let's think through what it means to confess God as almighty to say our trust is in the almighty God. We need to do that, for we are so far from being almighty ourselves that we don't naturally grasp what it means for God to be almighty. Because, let's face it, our experience of power of might is actually of the limitations of our power. So we can't, say, make the sun rise ten minutes later when we want to sleep in, we can't stop ourselves coughing when we get COVID. We can't even get through to Centrelink or Telstra when we want. Our power is limited and different from God's. We tire. When we exert ourselves, we need time to recover. We rely on others to help us get things done. But God never tires, never needs downtime to recover and never needs anyone else's help. We have to learn what it is to relate to the almighty God from the almighty God himself, from his word. And as we look at his word this morning, there are two things to grasp. Firstly, that God being almighty is both threat and hope, terror and comfort. And so the most important thing is to make sure we are at peace with the Almighty God, are among those for whom his power is comfort and hope. And secondly, the trusting that our God is Almighty is, along with a conviction of his love and faithfulness, one of the foundations of the way believers experience the world, finding expression in almost every part of our lives. So firstly, God being almighty is both threat and hope, terror and comfort 
because all opposition to the Almighty God is doomed to failure. Consider two history-changing events. Firstly, the exodus of Israel from Egypt, celebrated still today by the Jewish people in the Passover. Now, most of you know the story, don't you? On the one hand, there's Pharaoh, the wealthiest and most powerful ruler of his day. He's got an army, a cabinet, a whole university of advisers and magicians. He's a ruler made wealthy by his enslaved workforce with more personal power than any prime minister, any iron ore magnate or tech billionaire. And then there are two blokes, Moses and Aaron, one of whom has spent the last 40 years avoiding people and looking after sheep. And they're told by God to go to this powerful pharaoh and tell him to let God's people go to worship him, to just rock up and say, hand over control of your wealth-producing asset to us. Now, Pharaoh's reaction's predictable, isn't it? Who's the Lord that I should obey him by letting Israel go? I don't know the Lord, and besides, I will not let Israel go. And then to let the Israelites know that he, not God, is the power in the land of Pharaoh, he makes their work a lot harder. They're told to, they have to gather their own straw for the bricks, but still produce the same amount of bricks or be punished. Now, what do Moses and Aaron do? Engage in the tactics of other liberation movements, say, organised to gain public support by demonstration and a publicity campaign, or alternatively, perhaps start a guerrilla a ca- campaign of guerrilla violence to get Pharaoh to the negotiating table, or, or maybe give up, discouraged by their own obvious powerlessness, and leave the people in slavery. Well, that's not how the story goes, is it? The Lord tells Moses that he is determined to free the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He says, you must say whatever I command you. Then Aaron, your brother, must declare it to Pharaoh so that he will let the Israelites go from his land. But I'll harden Pharaoh's heart and multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. Pharaoh will not listen to you but I will put my hand into Egypt and bring the military divisions of my people, the Israelites, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. God says he will do what he has said he will do. And what no one else had done, he's going to free a whole people, hundreds of thousands of men, women and children from enslavement to the most powerful nation on earth at the time. More, he says, he will actually use Pharaoh's stubbornness, his hard heart. He'll use Pharaoh's determination not to let the Lord rule in Egypt to achieve his purpose and reveal his greatness. And that is what God did, himself alone, without anyone's help. He freed Israel by sending the ten plagues on Egypt, displaying his irresistible power and humbling the Egyptians by frogs, gnats, flies, and then judgments of increasing severity as Pharaoh resisted, death of livestock, boils, hail, locusts, darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. And even then, the Lord has not put forth the full measure of his might. As the Lord said to Pharaoh before the seventh plague, By now 
I could have stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with a plague and you would have been obliterated from the earth. However, I've let you live for this purpose, to show my power and to make my name known on the whole earth. Pharaoh's resistance to the Almighty God was useless and worse than useless, destructive to his people and deadly to himself when he perished in the Red Sea while trying to pursue the Israelites. If you want, like Pharaoh, to defy God by not doing what he has commanded, by suggesting that he has no place, well, God's power is terrifying. It means you can't negotiate with God to reach some kind of compromise you like. You can't prevent or resist him doing what he says he will do and you can't escape his sentence. God's almighty power is a threat to all those who want to say when called to obey, I don't know the Lord, I don't have to listen to him. But for the Israelites, God's almighty power is hope when they were, humanly speaking, hopeless. Hope of freedom and plenty of security and peace. Comfort when Pharaoh's anger and malice threatened them. Victory when God used the means by which he had saved them, the crossing of the sea, to destroy the Egyptian army. And remember, we are talking about an event remembered still every year by those who are direct descendants of those enslaved brickmakers. God's power is real in the world. Secondly, now consider the death and resurrection of Jesus. In Jesus' death, it looks like the people who are opposed to Jesus, who like Pharaoh don't want to know the Lord by recognising his son as ruler, have the power. It's true, they have the power of the institution. They have the power of the mob yelling crucify. They have the power of the Roman state. It's the power of lies and hatred, the power of the devil, the power of death. And they use that power to put an innocent Jesus to death. And in that moment, the weakness of Jesus, the weakness of God, seems plain for all to see. Jesus, born a man, is able to suffer and be killed. And he offers no resistance as he's betrayed and abused, a weakness from which his followers flee. On the cross, his weakness is mocked by his enemies. Save yourself, they cry. And then Jesus experiences the weakness of death of the tomb and the dead are completely powerless. And it isn't just the son's weakness on display on the cross. It's the father's. Here is the beloved son, whom the father's affirmed in his baptism and on the mountain, the son who has done the father's work in the world. And God seems unable to rescue him, him whom he loves. The cross exposes God as powerless to protect and keep his son, exposes him as weak. But the story doesn't end there. Jesus doesn't stay dead. God raises him from the dead. He reverses both the verdict and the sentence of human power. The son is soon to be righteous and he lives. And the resurrection is not just a belated rescue. 
God bringing a happy ending to a wicked human action outside his control, outsmarting his opponents in the end. No, their disobedience, their hatred and lies, their embrace of death is revealed as serving God's purpose, God's will. As the apostles teach from the beginning and demonstrate from the Old Testament, Jesus is delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge. It's what he purposed. It was God's will that Jesus die that way in weakness. And so the powerful did whatever God's hand and will had predestined, say the apostles, to take place, what he decided beforehand. Their rebellion carried out God's will and exalted the Jesus they rejected as God's victorious saving king. And the extent of that victory was cosmic. On the cross, the evil powers that seek to resist God's rule throughout the world are disarmed and disgraced, says Paul. By his death, the Lord Jesus is destroyed, says the writer of Hebrews, the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those, though who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Now there's lots we could say about the death of our Lord. But just think for a moment of the power displayed in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Well, there's power to raise the dead power to carry out a plan revealed in promises and prophecies made hundreds of years before, power that uses the malice and hatred of God's enemies, them doing their worst to do his goodwill, a power that wins even in weakness. Now, who can resist that power? a power so great that sin never succeeds in its aim of putting the disobedient outside God's rule, sin actually serving instead to demonstrate God's rule over all. And remember, the resurrection is not an idea, it's an event, an event with real consequences still today. The gospel going to the nations, the spirit being poured out, the church born, and yes, Judgment made certain. If you want to resist God, the death and resurrection of Jesus should terrify you. You don't escape God's rule by defying God. And you cannot console yourself in your rebellion by claiming that the God who calls you to trust and obey him is not good. For this is the resurrection of one who is good and merciful, who relieves suffering, who is bringing through that death a day when suffering will be no more, one who will bring a judgment which will remove death and injustice from the world forever. God's power is terror and threat to those who want to continue to disobey him. For those who want to say like Pharaoh, I don't, I won't know the Lord. And that could be you sitting here today. But for God's people, those who confess the crucified Jesus as Lord, God's power is comfort and hope. For in Jesus' resurrection, God's almighty power 
is power that can raise the dead who trust Jesus. Power that can reverse the world's judgment on our lives. Power that can make defeat victory. Power that can turn evil to good. Power that can forgive and give new life. And so the key question is, what will it be for you? Terror or hope? Fear or comfort? Are you defying or are you at peace with the almighty God? You ought to think it through because if, like Pharaoh, you're determined to keep God out of your life, your life will end like Pharaoh's, in the misery and destruction defying the almighty God brings. You cannot defeat or frustrate or get away from the God who can raise the dead. But it need not end that way if you will do what Pharaoh could not bring himself to do, what many in our society seem unable to do, and that is change your mind about who's in charge and say the crucified Jesus is in charge. He is Lord of God's creation. He is Lord of your life and not you. And then trust him. Trust him who died for your sins on that cross in obedience to the Father's gracious will to forgive you. He has the authority to do that. And you can do that now. You can do that today. Or you can find out more about this Jesus by talking with a Christian friend or joining us to do Christianity Explored. But if, as I hope most of you are, at peace with the Almighty God through believing the gospel of his son that he's died for our sins and risen again, how does that affect the way we live? How should trust in the almighty God be seen in the lives of believers? Well, it should affect every part of our lives. How, for example, we experience creation, how we pray, how we share the gospel. But I want to talk about just two areas of life the way we experience opposition and disappointment and the way we experience death. All of us experience at some time opposition from and being disappointed by others. It could be at work or in our families or even at church. People fail in their commitments, don't live up to their promises, don't return our love. They can mock us, seek to frustrate us. What does someone who trusts that the Lord their God is almighty do when they encounter such opposition and disappointment? Let's think of Joseph. There, back in Genesis 37. He experienced from his brothers, didn't he, hatred and cruelty. They sold him into slavery as the more profitable alternative to killing him. That would have hurt, wouldn't it? torn away from his family and familiar surroundings and then left at the mercy of people who didn't care for him, who thought he was just property, who sought to use him and would lie about him like Potiphar's wife. But when Joseph finally met his brothers, when they were in his power, he didn't exact revenge. He didn't even try and make their life miserable as some of the times we do, by snide asides and continually bringing their failure up. When he first met them, he comforted them. I am Joseph, your brother, he said, the one you sold into Egypt. 
And now don't be grieved or angry with yourselves for selling me here. Why could he say that, offer that comfort? Well, he was confident God was in control because God sent me ahead of you to preserve life. He was confident that God was in control of his whole history, including their decisions as well as Pharaoh's dreams. God sent me ahead of you, he told them. God was in control to do good, verse 7, to keep you alive by a great deliverance. So confident is Joseph that it's the almighty God's will that is the final cause of all things, that he is the one who bears ultimate responsibility for what has happened, that he can say, therefore it was not you who sent me here, verse 8, but God. Joseph was confident that his good, faithful God was in charge of all things and could recognise God's good purpose in all those painful things that had happened to him. And so he was freed from hatred and anger, bitterness and a desire for revenge. And this wasn't just a, a fleeting benevolence at the time of an emotional reunion. This was Joseph's settled outlook. When many years later, his brother's consciousness of guilt meant they feared that at the death of their father, Jacob, Joseph would exact a long-nursed revenge. Joseph said to them, Genesis 50, Don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You planned evil against me. God planned it. The same actions, God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. See, Joseph doesn't minimise what they've done. He acknowledges their intent was evil. But he knew the almighty living God was in charge, executing his good plans. God planned it for good. So Joseph could leave God to deal with his brothers according to his purpose for them, while he himself was freed by his trust in the sovereign rule of the Almighty God in all things to be generous and kind. The person who sustained, verse 21, God's people. Don't be afraid, I will take care of you and of your children, free to be the person God wanted him to be. Now, brothers and sisters, we have a promise from the Almighty God that tells us Joseph's response to opposition and disappointment should be our own. Speaking to believers, Paul writes, we know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. All things serve God's good purposes for us to conform us to the image of our Son, for our God is almighty and rules all things. Now, all things 
let me say, includes our sins and mistakes. And isn't that humbling? So confessing God is almighty and trusting his promise. When we face setbacks, when life doesn't work out as we want, often as the consequences of our own actions, or when our marriage is not the perfect one we desire, when our career doesn't progress as we would like or we're sidelined at work for our views, or even when something we deeply desire like children or our children loving us and respecting us does not happen, believers in Jesus won't give in to bitterness and anger. We won't be grumbling and complaining. We will trust that the almighty God who governs all things, even the wills of evil people, is working it for our good to make us like his son Jesus and to bring us to what he has promised that we would live in glory with him. So in the sadness we will still have thankfulness, thankfulness that we are God's children and be freed like Joseph to love as God would have us, to love even those who disappoint us, freed to live like God's children, like his son who said, not my will, but yours be done. Or when we're wounded by the words of one who loves us, or misunderstood and misrepresented by our friends, and that hurts. Or when we are frustrated by the imperfection of the love of our Christian brothers and sisters or the way they seem to have failed us. Trusting the almighty God, we will reason that our God has permitted that for our good. And so won't seek to return hurtful words with hurtful words. Won't seek to be cold and distant until they show us they're sorry. We'll be freed to keep living as God would have us, forbearing, forgiving and putting on love, testing even hurtful words to see if in them our good God is helping us grow in godliness by showing us our sin. For we know their words and actions can't derail our almighty Father's good purpose for us, but will only serve it. Help us become like his son. And just as all of us experience disappointment and opposition, so all of us experience death. How is trusting that our Heavenly Father's Almighty shown the way believers experience the death of those they love and their own death? Although it's out of fashion, believers will accept our own death and the death of those we love as from his hand, from the hand of our good Almighty God. The Lord gives, says Job, and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We will know that none of us lives one day more or less than the Almighty God wills. For the psalmist writes, Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. He knows the day of our birth and he knows and is determined the day of our death. Now that doesn't make us fatalistic. 
We will examine if we have responsibility for that, the causes of death, and seek to reduce preventable deaths. But it does mean that in our grief, we will still know our loving God is in charge. And humbling ourselves under the mighty God's hand, we will be spared the bitterness of those who think they have a right to a certain number of years and are somehow cheated by an earlier than average death of a loved one. And we'll be saved from hatred of those whose omissions and oversights as frail and fallible people may have contributed to their death. Those can be acknowledged. But knowing our good almighty God had the ultimate choice in whether we live or die and that he works all things for the good of those who love him. We're able to forgive and even comfort those who are confronted with their failures and be grateful for those who have cared even in our loss. And knowing God is almighty means that we ourselves, who has his promise of life in Christ, can die with a sure and confident hope. As we see in Christ, as we confess over and over again, death does not stop the Father for whom all things are possible from keeping his word. And so we can be confident with Paul that to depart and be with Christ, well, that will be better. We can look forward to the crown of righteousness promised to all who have loved our Lord's appearing. And won't that confident hope in our almighty God be a comfort to those we leave and love? There is much profit and encouragement from thinking through our confession of God as Almighty in every area of our lives. Yes, that confession will raise questions like how are we to think of unanswered prayer or why does evil continue in the world or even why aren't all saved? Those are good questions to ask and grapple with for they will take you to the scriptures to learn more from God of God and his ways. But in seeking answers to those questions, just as in grappling with the disappointments and trials of life, you will not grow in your knowledge of God by denying or minimising what is so clearly taught in scripture, both in the great events of our salvation and in the words of our Lord. Our God is almighty. All things are possible for him. Nothing is too hard for him. That confession is inseparable from Christian faith, a precious comfort in our trials, a cause for confidence in entrusting our lives to him by doing his will, by saying as our Lord, not my will but yours be done. Oh yes, and a cause of praise for the certain victory of his Saviour, the Lord Jesus. So does your faith, seen in the way you experience life, match your confession? You believe, if you believe in Jesus, in God Almighty. Do you trust him to do exactly and all that he has promised you in his word? Or is your faith limited to thinking God can only do what you think is possible? (laughs) 
Don't God can only enact the solutions you can see. Act in ways you think he could or should work. Oh, is your faith limited by your fears? Or is there unbelief seen in a grumbling and complaining heart that dishonours both the power and love of your God and unbelief that you need to repent of? As well as praying that we will grow in knowledge of God's love, Paul also prays this in Ephesians. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what, verse 19, is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the mighty working of his strength, which he exercised in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand far above every ruler and authority. Now, isn't that a good prayer to pray for yourself and each other? That we would know the immeasurable greatness of the power of the Almighty God. Know that for ourselves in our hearts. The power that raised the Lord Jesus from the dead and exalted him over all. And that we will grow in that knowledge. So we live confidently in all things, the lives of those who rely on the promises of the Almighty God. And remember this, no one will get to heaven and complain that they trusted God too much. There might be grief that they did not trust him enough, but none of us will complain that we trusted him too much to do all that he has promised. Do you experience life as one who confesses that the good God, the one God, Father, Son and Spirit is almighty, who confesses it and knowing God in Jesus, believes it with all your heart? Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, the testimony of your word is true. You're almighty. Nothing is too hard for you. And we have seen that in the gospel of your Son, our Lord Jesus, that your weakness is so much greater in power than we can imagine. We pray that in your mercy and through the work of your spirit, we would be ones who trust you as almighty, who know every promise you make will be fulfilled. Every word you speak will come to pass. And that trusting your almighty power and knowing your love for us in that death and resurrection in which we see your power and wisdom displayed, we would trust you and show that trust in living the lives of your children, saying always, not my will, but your will be done. For you are the God for whom all things are possible. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.